All right. Tonight on the popular show, the show about the popular left, we uh, have a great guest, a good friend of mine from Toronto, Ontario, uh, Karen Geyer. Karen is a writer based in Toronto who has been published in The Guardian, Vice, New York Magazine's The Cut, and more. She's the host and producer of On Belief, a podcast about cults, and On Grief, a podcast about death. I highly recommend that you check out both of them. And tonight, she's going to tell us how it is about the Royals. Uh, Last year, about almost a year uh, to the date, she wrote a great piece in Passage Magazine called Down with the Queen and Her Parasitic Family. And um, it really centers a little bit about, you know, it's kind of interesting that a year later we're talking about Meghan Markle and Prince Harry. And, uh, you know, it was about their first visit to the Commonwealth country of Canada and uh, what it means for Canadians. And uh, I think that she's one of the best guests to talk about the events of this week, what monarchy means to the Commonwealth and why we should abolish it. I think it's fascinating to sort of see this um, this kind of event of this interview through Commonwealth eyes, um, you know, coming to you from from Britain. Uh, in the interview itself, there's a kind of interesting moment where Meghan um, says that she was kind of shocked that the royal family was so indifferent to what her joining the royal family kind of had to offer the idea mm-hmm. that she could be um somebody that like uh, commonwealth citizens of color in the west indies in in africa could look at and sort of see themselves reflected and mm-hmm. I, I thought there was a kind of interesting naivety there because it suggested that the british the old british establishment relates to the commonwealth in that way it suggested a, a belief that the royal family wants the Commonwealth to see itself reflected in the monarchy. There's a. It, it reminded me of a bit in in the first episode of this recent Adam Curtis documentary, where um, he shows Commonwealth citizens coming to Britain en masse for the first time in the 50s and 60s, and having been taught in their home countries in 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 school that britain at the heart of the historical empire was their ultimate home they arrived there and found that they were totally unwelcome so i think there's an interesting kind of um that dynamic here in terms of how the commonwealth sees and relates to britain but also how the commonwealth thinks it's seen by britain and how or the british establishment and how it in fact actually is Mm-hmm. I mean, you're talking about a family that only recently started speaking English, right? I mean, they they are Teutonic. They're from like the this one very specific Hapula group 
<laughs> they are not <laughs> interested in changing that anytime soon. I mean, it, it's, uh, you know, the idea that um, the royals want to be representative in any way, shape, or form really is the ultimate, like, it's like, how could you be this foolish? They don't. I mean, <laughs> we have to remember this hasn't been that long ago that, you know, Wallace Simpson and her husband were taken in by the Nazis. So <laughs> it, 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 it defies imagination that anybody would think that there is progressive politics happening within, you know, Kensington Palace. You know what, Harry would be a perfect follow-up to Trudeau because this guy who we saw on the interview um, <laughs> soberly uh, informing us that he does the work is also a guy mm -hmm. where there's uh, tabloid pictures of him in a Nazi uniform. Yeah. So there's a kind of, uh, you know, woke bay, uh, formally blacking up, <laughs> whatever yeah. um, kind of parallel there. Yeah, people forgot all about that and uh, mm. Oprah certainly didn't want to ask about it, so... One thing well, that, she didn't want to ask about anything. One thing I, 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 I was surprised to hear is like, you know, there was a mention of uh, some really uh, members of the royal family who, because of uh, Epstein's uh, flight logs, uh, who are really uh, sort of tarnished. And to see them mm -hmm. be talked about positively without a follow-up question was, was quite something. Yeah. I, I mean, I did not watch the interview on the night that it aired, I did watch it after the fact because I just simply couldn't believe what people were tweeting about. I was like, there's no way they, they gave these kind of deep details. And so I did watch it and I was like, okay, this is a classic, you know, I call them Panera moms uh, on Twitter. Like <laughs> this is a classic, like centrist, um, you know, blue wave type people who are like, oh, I love Joe Biden. And like, yeah. you could just see those people being sort of bowled over by this and sort of like, you know, knitting together, you know, a narrative in their mind about what actually was being said rather than what was being said. And I'm sure that that was 100% by design, but I was left rather cold by it. I thought, it was good that she mentioned the stuff about, you know, the overt racism in in the palace, because I think that's an important story to tell for people who love to defend the royals. But yeah, I mean, it really was sort of like there's nothing new to be to be told here, I don't think, or that I wasn't really getting a sense of like, oh, you know, this is brand new information. And even, you know, the comparisons to Diana's interview stopped short of saying like, literally the same kinds of things were being said because if you recall when yeah. diana was interviewed she would say these things and she would look down and then look up and it was just the same kind of um roundabout mm -hmm. sort of donut speaking there was a lot around it but nothing in the middle <laughs> so yeah it was yeah. real uh, just <laughs> real uh, two people, Harry and Meghan, who've obviously been um, media trained to within an inch oh, of their yeah. lives, and uh, and go. There's just certain phrases that just kept coming up, like as kind of clear examples of that. Like James, as you said, like uh, Harry saying he's done the work, and then uh, elsewhere there was the footage of Meghan and Harry dancing in an unspecified Commonwealth African country with the voiceover representation is important, as if like yes. <laughs> yeah, we don't know where the fuck this is, but representation is yeah. important. Exactly. Like, no matter where it is, just as long as someone sees 
someone. Like it's, yeah. it and then also we have the conflation of living in the palace with lockdown as a kind of you know relatable soundbite. I think that fame is a prison and I do think that specifically royalty is a special kind of prison because it's fame but you're never allowed to you know kick off at a bar in Los Angeles and just like you know what I mean like there's no there's no um safety valve you know everything has to be done under cloak and dagger or you know in the case of you know what we've seen on the crown you have to invite all of your your theater friends into your apartments in the royal palace or whatever in order to have a good time and like i think that that is um you know an unfortunate thing but i also think you know um it's not probably what people who have been locked in their homes having to do you know their full-time jobs and do everything around the home and do homeschooling with their children and do it for less money than they were doing it years before because everything has you know added fees and whatever and um you know people aren't getting raises during covid and all of this stuff like i think it's it's a classic I mean, if you look back at most of Oprah's shows before she um, decided to do the Oprah Network or whatever, there is a real feeling of that whole like town and country, like, aren't isn't this relatable? And it's like, well, no, it's not yeah. because you know, <laughs> Shirley MacLaine is not coming over to my house. Martha Stewart isn't making me Thanksgiving dinner. Uh, <laughs> so, but I think that people eat that up. I think you know, and, and something that I also thought was really funny was people were like, "Oh my God, Oprah has just really proven that she could do this at any time. She is at the top of her game. She's an excellent interviewer." I'm like, Jeremy Paxman is an excellent interviewer. <laughs> Oprah Winfrey does PR. You know, I, See, that's I, fascinating. I about that, that. Uh, no, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, I, I was just going to say that, that that's that sort of classic. Um, I, I don't know, de Democrats, blue wave managerial class response admiration for somebody else's like not even their professionalism but their profession their their kind of career point but that mm -hmm. she's at the top of her game it, this is watched not for you know actual insights into the royal family but as if admiring a kind of slightly superior colleague who you mm -hmm. aspire yeah. to uh, emulate yourself mm -hmm. i mean people really love to forget that she her show used to be like absolute tabloid shit when she first yeah. started uh you can't even find a lot of those clips online anymore because she has people that take them down off of youtube um like just absolute horrible like when you think back to like you know jerry springer sally jesse Raphael, ricky lake whatever the worst kinds of that kind of tabloid sort of um talk show thing and then she decided that she wanted to change direction and it went into this thing where there was like all of this, oh, here's my celebrity friends stuff. And then here's all the expensive stuff I like to buy. <laughs> and then um, also doing this thing called the Angel Network, which I don't know if anybody remembers the Angel Network, but it was like a basically um, a charity and nobody really knows 100% where the money went for that. And that got stopped at a certain point. And then she opened um a school in africa in south africa i believe um where you know after i think it was maybe the first 18 months all of these horrendous stories came out about abuse and and sexual abuse and all of this horrible behavior that was happening at this school and that all got swept under the rug she never had to answer for it she never had to pay for it it just went away <laughs> yeah and it's yeah. it's it's people forget that she was uh 
probably a leading contender for the 2020 um, Democratic nomination at one point. And uh, I think it was good people, good people on left Twitter who who pulled up the clips, pulled up the charity work, pulled up her her support for uh, you know, charter schools in Chicago and, um, you know, who really brought it out. And I think that, you know, I don't, it's, it's interesting to see America's sort of, she's, you know, sort of a, a queen of American culture, uh, mm-hmm. you know, talk to these other royals and it was almost like they were being sworn into the American family. Mm-hmm. She, uh, she also, she said recently, you know, she was talking about white privilege and uh, somebody, I, I don't know, an interviewer or someone in the audience said, well, what, how do you figure, you know, poor, poor white people in America? Uh, and she replied, well, they still have their whiteness. Now, there are plenty of people I'll listen to that argument from. But I'm not going to listen to it from a, a literal billionaire, you know. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, that, that's real sort of Marie Antoinette's ruling class stuff. Let them eat whiteness. I mean, she was a literal kingmaker. People forget. Nobody mm. outside of Chicago mm. knew who Barack Obama was before he decided to run for president. She made that happen. You know, she had an hour and a half show that was just about how Barack Obama was amazing before the nomination. And she tipped the scales in his favor. And she did all of that work to bring that about. She never once did anything to enact any other kind of legislation. She never said, hey, Medicare for all is the way to go. Hey, you know, whatever it is, I don't care. Tort reform. She never did anything political, overtly political outside of getting Barack Obama the nomination. I find that fascinating. So what is this interview for? That's my kind of interest. Everyone's sort of uh, in yeah. a, you know, on a certain part of the political spectrum, everyone's absolutely adoring this or treating this as a kind of um, moment of exposure for the royal family equivalent to the death of Diana. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of its actual kind of like political effects, the only thing I can see it doing is offering once again um, a kind of opportunity for everybody to you know, run down their lane, everybody to pick their mm. side. Uh, either you're you're with the Royals and um and Piers Morgan or, or you're uh and you're on you're on the right or centre right or you're on the left and therefore you have to support Meghan and Harry. And therefore it's just another kind of instance of um uh of cultural issues being deployed in such a way as to force um, potentially radical people to take one side in an intra-elite conflict, to side with the you know, progressives against the conservatives, to side with the Whigs against the Tories, to side with new money against old money, capitalism against feudalism. Um, and well, you know, it's a repeat of the it's a repeat of the U.S. election, actually. Uh, this kind of way in which leftists were sucked up into okay, we've got to we've got to stop literal fascism here. We've got to support Biden. So, you know, time and again, we see these kind of cultural events or these moments deployed in a way where you you, you just end up kind of being sucked into so taking a side in a in in a dispute that's actually taking place within a mm-hmm. tiny minority a tiny uh, elite minority yeah 
it's it's a very interesting thing. I think that um, it has sort of a couple. Uh, there were a couple goals with this. Obviously, one ratings gold. Um, number two, Oprah maybe testing the waters for having some sort of like Barbara Walters esque career, whereby a few times a year she does this and everybody goes gaga for it. I also think that cynically, I think that this was a perfect example of there's there were three people on that show who um, have untold wealth, untold privilege, untold access, who are are picking up on the, the general vibe that people are having in COVID lockdown and everything going like, you know, questioning capitalism. I mean, I saw that there were photos of um, some statues and things like that that were vandalized after the interview where people were writing parasite on, um, you know, statues of the queen and things like mm -hmm. that. I think that it's a it's a dodge. I think it's a way of saying like, oh my God, these people are horrible, but we're the good, good. We're, we're rich. We are famous. We are popular. We have these things, but we're good about it. You know, we have this, you know, they, she, how, how much time did she dedicate to the, the little commercial for Archwell? How much time, you know, yeah, how yeah. much time have we heard about, you know, you know, Oprah's, you know, efforts or whatever. And it's like, Okay. Um, I really feel like it was kind of this weird dodge to just be like, you know, some billionaires are bad, but these billionaires are good kind of a thing. And it's, it, it, people should rightfully be upset about that. People should rightfully be like, what the fuck were you thinking in this, in this moment? Yeah. But I think that, you know, an Adam Curtis reference here would be sort of apt that it's only going to get worse from here on out because it worked. So that now means yeah. <laughs> that it's going to be tried again. Yeah. Yeah. And that made me really wonder. I mean, it made me think about, you know, I mean, the fact that Megan McCain is uh, is on national television every day. And oh, it, made yeah. me, it made me think about, I think one of the funnier tweets that I saw was Megan McCain say, fuck this monarchy. I'm so glad we don't have it in the United States. And the, the, the tweet was deleted, I, I would say, within 35 seconds. Mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. i think that there was probably a thousand people that we probably follow on twitter that said mm -hmm. hey you are the monarchy and yeah. this is the problem yeah she wouldn't have a job if it weren't for her famous father which nobody can remember the name of um but yeah i mean <laughs> it's uh, america absolutely has monarchy and absolutely has i mean if if you want to go even further you can say that people like elon musk jeff bezos um you know, um, Bill Gates, people like that are also monarchy because it does not matter what happens. It does not matter whether somebody was on the Epstein flight logs, people will still get excited for that person. It does not matter what Elon Musk does, because if you look up his rap sheet, if you look up the things that he has done to workers at the Tesla factory, um, I mean, it's absolutely abominable. But people if you ever say anything in in elon's mentions you will have a thousand people being like you're just jealous oh fuck you bitch and it's just <laughs> yeah. you know people want to worship those people that they think are successful because of some kind of either divine right like we we're talking about with the royal family or because of some kind of magical mystical power that they have the magical mystical power that elon musk has is he's able to steal from people yeah. very yeah. well and i think that that's really where um, you know, people were with the monarchy, 
you know, after the first wave of allegations with Andrew, I really do, because I think there were lots of people that really wanted it to be plausible deniability. And then when he did the interview, I think that that was a turning point for a lot of people who were like, okay, buddy, like, yeah, you know, he was not a uh, media coached within an inch of his life, or if he was, no. it wasn't <laughs> something happened. Yeah. yeah, that is really interesting because I mean uh, Epstein and and Prince Andrew, and I, I guess that was the 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 last high profile um, royal interview. Thinking okay. about it, um, that actually kind of points to a way in which I think the right are a lot more kind of erratic and unpredictable on this issue than the left are. The left are either you know like us. To, totally cynical or dutifully as we've said lining up behind uh the progressive billionaire camp um but it, on, on the right i mean one thing i wanted to like get, get a sense of is whether the like the, the very real like obsessive like folk racism uh against Meghan markle is a is a sort of british phenomenon or, or whether that whether you've seen any of that elsewhere um, or whether that has been a sort of like cottage industry for, for, for us. Um, but as well as that, as well as that, you know, racism that comes, as we learned from the interview, from the palace PR machine into the tabloids down to the grottiest Facebook groups, as well as that, there's also a kind of um, quasi QAnon anti-royal feeling um, mm-hmm. that, that was seen last year in protests outside Buckingham Palace um, that were, um, well, we, we don't exactly have QAnon in Britain, but we have something called Save the Children protests, mm-hmm. which don't quite mm-hmm. go in for the full mythology, but are kind of on the spectrum. So mm-hmm. in this kind of world of the the kind of cosmic right on on uh, Facebook and Instagram, you've actually got quite a kind of erratic like set of feelings where mm-hmm. Megan's absolutely hated as she's been set up to be and seen as a kind of traitor and and shrew and and, and all the rest of it. But there's also actually much more sort of passionate feeling about. Prince Andrew and, and Jeffrey Epstein. And I have to say, when I saw those, like, you know, sort of Q and on-ish protests outside Buckingham Palace, I, I just thought, Jesus Christ, you know, momentum, the the, mm-hmm. the, the Corbyn organisation should have been organising those protests over Prince Andrew, not ceding the ground to this kind of chaotic rights that we see yeah. today. A hundred percent. I mean, that was the moment, wasn't it? It's too bad that things played out the way for Jeremy Corbyn that they had to. Um, But, you know, at at least Keir Starmer keeps losing points every single week when polls come in. So that forensic shit is popping. But yeah, it's, you know, I think, I think, you know, the thing about the right is that even in America, when you see people like, you know, Ben Shapiro or, or people like that talking about these kinds of issues, they want to talk, they want to support the, the royal family because ultimately I think America really has this 
like the American right has a really big hard on for the idea of monarchy. It has all the shit they love pageantry, music that sucks, weird outfits, um, you know, huge banquets with shitty food, the, everything that they love, everything that they love. Um, but, you know, racism. <laughs> but they're also, yeah, racism, but they're also not allowed to like it because. Yeah. America is so amazing and America fought this war um, to tell the king to fuck off. So <laughs> it's this real, it's this real quagmire for a lot of these folks. And so they will fight it on one issue alone. So, it, you know, does the queen have the right to, you know, take, you know, security away from her, her children? Well, yeah, she does have that right. So they'll support on that or, or these, these small, smaller items, but you know, I, it would be very unusual to see someone like a Ben Shapiro stand up and say, like, you know, the Queen's wonderful. I love the Queen. But then when you're talking about the QAnon stuff, the QAnon stuff is interesting because I think that, again, a lot of these people who believe in it are actually dominionists at heart and actually do believe that America would be better off having a... Um, mm. you know, a benevolent dictator, you know how that always happens um, in charge. <laughs> and so, but they just don't want those people doing it because those people are weird and, um, you know, they are participating in this satanic uh, pedovore cabal. So the idea of monarchy really gets the peckers up on these people, but the, <laughs> the practicalities of the British monarchy uh, are, are a big quagmire for them. You know, um, when Princess Diana died, uh, to, uh, this was, you know, the last time that the, the royal family sort of notoriously, like, showed themselves out of step with public opinion and, and looked very cold and heartless. And that was, you know, actually, I remember it very well. I, I was just starting secondary school and um, I went to see Men in Black at the cinema that day. Uh, and um, yeah, D Diana died, and, and Tony Blair had just got in, and he, he sort of leapt on it. There's a really good account of it in, the, in this book, 1997, The Future That Never Happened by Richard Power Said. He absolutely leapt on this as a kind of way to um, kind of shore up the idea of New Labour's modernity, that they mm -hmm. understood how to kind of show emotion in public. They were in touch with public feeling about Diana as opposed to these crusty old royals and they actually kind of offered the royal family their like dark arts of PR and the way it's um, been thought of or described is that B Blair and the new Labour machine kind of encouraged the royal family to adopt Diana's own qualities in order to survive this scandal and crisis so they would become like her, in touch with popular culture, you know, show their emotions and, and be spontaneous uh, for, to, to the public and in the media. And I, I think that's like quite interesting, this idea that um, the royal family were meant to be taught by New Labour how to copy Diana. I think what we see uh, in that interview is that, that actually the royal family didn't learn how to copy Diana. They learned how to copy New Labour. They learned how to copy uh, the modern political party, which handles its party management, handles its internal disputes by leaking to the press, throwing people, it, you know, the, uh, kind of in the way or inconvenient 
to the dogs or throwing throwing them under the bus, whatever. Mm. And like, I, I guess we, we've got to make the comparison with your ongoing work on cults. Like, do do you see a sort of parallel between the cults uh, that you uh, examine on the podcast and, and the royal family itself? I mean, yeah, I think that a lot of money now, whether it's political parties, as you said, corporations or, you know, the royal family entities such as that, a lot of money that could be spent on actually doing things, actually modernizing, actually heating a fucking room in your home um, are being spent on... um, are being spent on these tactics to whip up and manufacture consent and to whip people up into joining the K-Hive and, you know, wanting to learn the Hillary Clinton dance and all of these weird things because they know that those are emotional moments that connect with people and that people will look back on and be like, oh, remember when we wore our pussy hats to the Women's March? Nothing happened out of that, by the way. But, you know, people, People want to have those connections. They want to feel that they are somehow involved with the democratic process, or they want to feel that they're somehow involved with something larger than themselves, but, um, you know, don't necessarily want to know, you know, what's behind the curtain. And, and Mm. so, yeah, it is exactly like that is it's, I would say it's more like a love scam. So I actually had a woman on my show who runs a website called Love Fraud. And she talked all about these people who perpetuate romance scams. And there's actually an amazing um, Showtime documentary called Love Fraud, which I believe is four parts um, that came out last year that I encourage people to watch if they want to understand this kind of mentality is that, you know, these are people who come on really strong. They're like, oh, they're very welcoming. Oh, they want to show you their world. And then once they sort of get a sense that you have been seduced by this, this, you know, it's just stringing you along, keeping you on the team. And that's really where all the money and attention is going, whether it's the royal family, whether it's, you know, the Labour Party um, or, you know, corporations. I mean, you know, Coca-Cola, companies like that, you know, Microsoft, whatever, they spend their PR money trying to develop these cult-like followings rather than creating a better product and getting, you know, uh, respect and, and, and you know, consumers on board by providing the a quality product that fulfills their desires. So, yeah, I mean, that's the way it's all going now. It's, it, it is, you know... It is about what what emotions and ideas can be sold back to you uh, rather than what what a company or an organization can actually do for you. bit about your perspective on the relationship to the monarchy to the commonwealth Mm -hmm. 
I mean, I think the Commonwealth is an idea that's time has come and well gone. It's, you know, I think Canada has this idea of itself that is tied to, you know, being part of the monarchy when they want to for like the flash and dash and talking about, you know, the royal address at Christmas and, you know, the the weddings and all that stuff. But then also being able to say, oh, no, you know, we're actually this like super cool, you know, hippie kind of place that has a, a strong social safety net and whatever. None of that is actually like, you know, accurate <laughs> or true to describe Canada, but that is the impression that Canada has of itself. And so we are tied to this idea of monarchy because it it has cachet. We're a really young country. So it's this thing that we're, we can say we're tied to this other sort of grand tradition, except for that grand tradition. The reason that Canada exists is is exploitation, murder, genocide, rape. It's all of these horrific things, you know, and and that's why I think that we need to be out of the Commonwealth. Every day that we spend in the Commonwealth says that we're okay with, you know, imperialism. We're okay with, you know, the, the British Empire as it is and as it was, um, you know, uh, you know, and that you know, it, it's a means to an end of being able to say, oh, yeah, no, we're but we're this great country now. And and I have a real problem with that, because I don't think that Canada actually has a real identity. And I think that, you know, being able to separate ourselves from from the monarchy is just one way of saying, okay, that's it. And now we're going to establish our own identity. Yeah, I think that's that's really interesting. I I, I know that we, the other day on um, it was the uh, cross country checkup, which is the call-in show on CBC Radio. Uh, Ian Hannah Mansing had you know interviewed a number of people and you know who were calling in, and it was interesting to see the difference between new immigrants from the Commonwealth countries and people who had lived here and indigenous people and mm -hmm. the people who had lived here for some time or in indigenous people had more of a sour relationship with the monarchy in particular indigenous people, given the, the ongoing genocide in Canada. Um, but I saw people from other areas of the Commonwealth sort of sticking up for it. And I was mm -hmm. wondering, and I think this is something as an American living candidate, it's always a perspective I don't understand is why are people so proud to be related to, you know, sort of under the, the auspices of the queen? Yeah. It's because I think people love to have this idea of tradition and history that exists in this sort of disnified version. So you see it in America, you know, when people talk about the revolutionary war, when people talk about, um, you know, the civil war, when people talk about world war two, it is this absolutely ahistorical idealized version of what America is, that America is some pure, you know, pure force for good. And that it always enters into these encounters, these wars, you know, with the best ideas and the, <laughs> the best um, intentions. It never loses because it's backed by God, you know, and it, that's, that is, you know, that's the modern version of the Commonwealth ties to the monarchy that the, the mm -hmm. Commonwealth is, you know, so tied to, I mean, I'm going to back up. So uh, have you seen Coming to America 2? Or Not coming, yet. Sorry, uh, coming to oh, America, yes. I guess. <laughs> yes, no, absolutely. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the Coming to America, the original movie, do you remember what it looks like when they're in Shemuda or uh, Zamuda? Yes. Yes. Okay. 
right? So what does it look like? Describe it. It's white, white buildings, pink paint, all of these hallmarks of, of Commonwealth, all of these hallmarks yeah. of, um, you know, imperialism. But when they go there in the second movie, it's all, you know, Africanized. It's all yeah. actually accurate toward what we would asso associate with African art, African architecture, African design. Mm -hmm. To me, that's <laughs> that is a, a perfect example of you know people understanding this idea that a lot of the ideas that we have about history are so tied to this idea of royalty, empire, mm. um, you know, co colonialism that people think that that is the beauty standard. People think that is the the art standard. People, mm. you know, want to be associated with that because it gives mm -hmm. them a sense of of identity to something larger, which is something that I think is really endemic to everybody. I think it's also the reason why people join cults. I think it's also the reason why people have problems when people die. I think it's, it's, um, we all want to be tied to a bigger thing. So what's bigger than America, <laughs> the, the British yeah. empire, what, you know, it's that idea of, well, might makes right. It's this beautiful, uh, architecture. They brought in, you know, this, that, and the other, you know, we all have gin and tonics now from from <laughs> every corner of the earth. Yeah. All of the best gin and tonic you'll ever have is in Barcelona. But anyway. Do you see it as um, as in any way a kind of block for the Canadian left? I, I, I wondered how you'd sort of figure it with the fact that you've got this kind of aesthetically progressive prime minister um, mm -hmm. that you've that, that, that you've got a kind of wafer thin kind of aesthetic sort of sense that the left is in some way in power um you you've you've got a country that yeah re remains sort of emotionally tied to the commonwealth how, how does the left mm -hmm. sort of negotiate those sort of big blocks well, it's interesting that this has sort of come up in, an, in a sort of sideways uh manner because recently the governor general uh had to um had to be removed and uh so you know people began saying okay why do we just not replace her why don't we revisit what it would what it would take for canada to be a republic for canada to be a pure democracy you know excised from um, mon a monarchic rule and i think that it sort of went you know people were talking about it for sort of a week two weeks and then it you know fell by the wayside, I think, I think generally speaking, people who would definitely identify themselves as leftists, meaning not people who would say I voted for the Liberal Party, but people who are a little bit more tough than that, um, would say, yeah, we don't want it, but it's on the lower end of the priority list behind a bunch of other things that are more immediate concerns, like having, um, you know, mental health care, having, um, you know, dental care, having, um, you know, pharmacare, things like that, um, you know, child, um, you know, day, daycare, because we have one of our provinces, Quebec, has amazing, like, very low cost daycare, they want to extend that across the country. I think that it, it's going to take a lot for Canadian leftists to understand that the underpinnings of everything that we do are tainted by empire. And that that is a place that we should start because it is a place where you can sever that tie and build a country in the ideals that you want to see expressed. 
the problem with that is that the liberals have absolutely zero desire in any of that. The liberals just yeah. want to be in power. They don't want to actually govern in any sort of leftist way unless they get sort of shoved into a corner. We saw that with the Serb plan, which is that, you know, they didn't want to do it. And then people were like, you need to do something now. And then they passed Serb, which was our, you know, the $2,000 a month that people could apply for. And you know, since then, all of this other stuff has come out about that, you know, that they tried to, they tried to shut it down, and then they were forced into extending it. Then they said that they were going to claw back some of the money from people who they thought were, you know, undesirables who had applied for it, even though they went on television and told people to apply anyway. Um, so I think it's, it's a real problem is that, you know, leftists don't see it as a pressing issue in the way that they maybe should. And also, any anything with a semblance toward leftism in Canada is a Potemkin village. <laughs> so. Yeah, I think that that's something that I think particularly American audiences don't understand. They're like, they see Jagmeet Singh, they see, you know, the TikToks, they, they you know, they said, oh, you have a, you have a, like a very multicultural sort of representation of the left. Um but left people on the left here, you know, have a very different opinion of the NDP, and it's a, a better one or a worse one on day to day basis. And mm-hmm. um, you know, we're seeing sort of the NDP swing back to a more traditionalist role, and not their traditional role, but a more traditionalist role, like in a more establishmentarian role. And it's um, it's it's been a little, it's been a difficult ride for me because I, you know, I was hoping, oh yeah, we finally I'm moving to a country with a left party. Uh, I think that I think that what we saw um, last year, I, we saw some people say, "Well, what, maybe we can leave the Commonwealth, but maybe we can make Harry and Meghan, uh, you know, the the heads of state." And I thought that was one of the funnier things that I'd heard because I thought, "Oh, it's like, oh, we have a more progressive sort of uh, monarch." Uh, you may have seen um, Meghan saying, talking about her time as a, specifically a working member of the royal family. She said, at my old job, there was a union and they would protect me, contrasting that with um, her, her experience in the royal family where she felt uh, entirely unsupported by mm-hmm. AHR and anyone else. So the, I wonder, do you think Meghan is making unions cool again, popular, if you will? And is that something to celebrate, if so, coming from her specifically? I mean, honestly, if that is the thing that makes people investigate how to get their their a workplace unionized then god bless her you know if that's the one takeaway that people have um i think that that is a net good because i think that we have seen you know there has been basically 40 years of negative pr toward unions and obviously not every union is great and wonderful and not every union always acts in the best interests of its members. Um, but I think that the alternative that we have been experiencing, you know, 45 years of wage stagnation, um, you know, the cost of living going through the roof, the cost of even educating yourself, um, you know, people, you know, in America are $200,000 in debt because they wanted to get an education so they could get a job making $75,000, maybe eventually in 10 years. I mean, this is, <laughs> you know, so if people, uh, you know, listen to that and say, hey, wow, unions actually perform a, a valuable service, then God bless them. And I hope they investigate it further. Um, you know, unions do have a bad rep um, and they do need they do need help. And if she can make it glamorous then you know, go for it, I guess. 
Karen, I think that's a great, a great place to wrap. I, I think that, you know, if you can get into a union, join a union, if you can help support a union, support a union. Mm-hmm. And if you can help, uh, help support people who are on a union drive, please do that as well. I know that yeah. in Alabama, they're doing it. The They're still voting, I believe, on the, the Amazon warehouse. Amazon so, yeah. so important, you know, given that Jeff Very Bezos is, is the, the royalty of the world at this point. Um, you know, I what what that's what I like about uh, following you on Twitter and, and, and getting to know you is that like you'll you'll have everything from good recipes to dog pics to to uh, you know Union Drive uh, sign up uh, and information. So for those people who who maybe don't follow you, if if they don't follow you, I you know I'm I'm not going to blame them now, but I will blame them once they know where to find you. Where can they find you on Twitter, and then where can they find your podcasts? Okay, so um, I'm K-A-R-E-N-G-E-I-E-R on Twitter. I have to spell it out because nobody can figure out how to type out my surname. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the podcast, the, the so on, on Grief is on hiatus because I stopped it during COVID because it was just getting too bleak. Um, yeah. but, um, but On Belief is still going. So it's just it's on belief a podcast about cults it's available anywhere that you get podcasts meaning you know apple Podcasts, google play uh spotify etc um and uh there's also a paid tier on patreon uh and there's some goodies that you can get from there um as well and you know um it's it's basically the whole premise of the podcast is true stories you know interviews with actual survivors of uh cults or controlling groups or sometimes we do have experts on the show so for instance you know we've had a rabbi on to discuss um you know uh, messianic jewish groups or we've had um you know, we have a, a, a man named Toby Aloe who comes on and does some sort of historical representations of, you know, how, how certain things came to be. So he came on and talked about, you know, the, um, you know, the, the sort of me movement that happened in the late 60s, early 70s, where people started to really look inside and how that sort of made some really fundamental changes in uh, the landscape of America. Karen, thank you so much. And I, I, I just really encourage everyone to check out Unbelief. It's uh, it's one of those those podcasts that you get into and then you, you just kind of keep listening and keep listening. Um, and I, I think that you're, you're going to love it. Um, it's extremely professional and, and, and extremely interesting to listen to. So check it out, Unbelief. Unbelief.